butt up out of the bottom. The nervous system has a simple, efficient way to fire the correct motor units to initiate this hip drive. Eye gaze direction plays an important part in this process of driving the hips, and it is introduced even before the bar becomes part of the squat. Looking up at the ceiling when squatting has so many detrimental effects on proper technique that it is absolutely amazing that so many people still advise their lifters to do it. It interferes with the correct bottom position, with the hip drive out of the bottom, and with the correct back angle. It changes the focal point from a close, manageable spot very close to the eyes to one that is always farther away. And the neck position that results from looking at the ceiling is inherently unsafe. To place the cervical spine in extreme overextension and then to place a heavy weight on the trapezius muscles directly underneath it is at best imprudent, shall we say. The normal anatomical position for the cervical spine is the preferred position when the weights get heavy. The habit of looking up is also very difficult as a problem to correct if it has existed for any length of time. Lifters whose high school football coaches taught them to look up during the squat often have a very difficult time later changing the eye gaze direction to the correct one, even when we have effectively demonstrated that looking down works so much better. An embedded movement pattern is always easier to perform than a new one. And it will be the default movement pattern if conscious control is shifted to another aspect of the new technique. Do an experiment or two to demonstrate for yourself the effect of eye gaze direction. Assume the bottom position with your knees out, toes out, and heels down. Put your chin down slightly and look at a point on the floor four or five feet in front of you. Now drive your hips up out of the bottom and take note of how this feels. Now do the same thing while looking up at the ceiling. If you have a training partner or a coach, get in the bottom position and have him block your hips. With a hand placed firmly on your lower back, pushing straight down so that you have something to push up on, but not so that he pushes you forward. This pushing down should mimic the gravity vector. Push up against this resistance while looking down at your floor focus point and note the effectiveness of your hip drive and the power it produces. Then try this movement again while looking up at the ceiling. You will discover an amazing thing that the chin down, the looking down keeps the chin down position, eyes down, enables your hip drive to function almost automatically. In contrast, the upward gaze of the eyeballs pull the chest forward and up, the knees forward and the hips forward, just a little, but enough to produce a profound detrimental effect on hip drive. It slacks the hamstrings and all the posterior muscles we are trying to keep tight so that we can use them to drive the hips up. The first time you do this experiment will convince you that looking down is more efficient, works every time. Looking at the floor also provides the eyes with a fixed position reference. Using this reference, you can easily identify any deviation from the correct movement pattern and adjust it as it happens. The ceiling also provides a reference, but the neck position is unsafe, and anything you're looking at upward will be further away than the floor when you're looking at the bottom of the squat, unless you're in a very low-ceilinged room. It's hard to imagine a room in which the floor isn't closer to the eyes than the ceiling. The floor is therefore more useful as a reference. Smaller movements can be detected against the closer focal point. Most people will have more trouble with this change in their eye gaze direction than with any other aspect of this squatting method. To correct the error of looking up, fix your eyes on a position on the floor four or five feet in front of you. If you're training close to the wall, find a place to look that is low on the wall that results in the same neck position. Stare at this point and get used to looking at it so that it requires no conscious effort. 
Most people, if they're looking down, will not raise their heads to the point where neck position is affected. Inventive coaches have used tennis balls under the chin for the purpose of demonstrating a chin-down, chest-up position. Adding the bar. Now you're ready to squat. You've already been in the position that you will go to at the bottom, and now you're just going to go back down there with the bar. First, chalk your hands. Chalk is always a good idea because it dries out the skin. Dry skin is less prone to folding and abrasion than moist skin and therefore less prone to problem callus formation. If the weight room is not equipped with chalk, bring your own. If the gym complains, get a better gym. The squat begins at the power rack or the squat stands, whichever you're using. Set the rack height so that the bar in the rack is about the level of your mid-sternum. Many people will perceive this is too low, but it's better to be a little low taking the bar out of the rack than to have to tiptoe back into the rack with a heavy weight. Often, this position in the empty rack will look low because the diameter of the bar sitting in the hooks tells the eye a different story about its true height in the rack. When the bar is placed in the rack, the eye will be more comfortable with the setting. And remember, we're placing the bar in a lower position than the top of the traps. So you'll need the rack lower than you think you do. You'd rather have the rack set a little too low than a little too high, and most people are not as tall as they think they are. Most people will want to use a position in the rack that is too high. If your shoulders are not flexible enough to assume the low bar position at first, they will stretch out over a couple of weeks. Face the bar. Always an empty bar at first. Always. Always an empty bar. There will be plenty of time very soon to add weight. Take an even grip on the bar measured from the markings on the bar there for this purpose. A standard power bar has a 16 to 17 inch gap between the ends of the outside knurl and 32 inches between the finger marks, those eighth inch gaps in the knurl indicating a legal bench press grip on power bars. Grip width for the squat will obviously vary with shoulder width and flexibility. But in general, the hands will be between these two markings on this type of bar. A narrower grip allows a flexible person to better support the bar with the posterior muscles of the shoulder when the elbows are lifted just a little. And a wider grip allows an inflexible person to get more comfortable under the bar. In either case, a narrower grip tightens your shoulder muscles so that the bar is supported by muscle and doesn't dig into your back. Therefore, the narrowest grip that you can maintain should be the one you use. The thumbs should be placed on top of the bar so that the wrists can be held in a straight line with the forearms. The elbows should be cranked up to trap the bar between the hands and the back, but not so high that the upper back is forced to round over. If a lack of flexibility in the chest and shoulders prevents your achieving this position, just use the high bar position until proper stretching can make you flexible enough to get the bar down to a better position. If you're flexible enough now, take a grip wide enough to permit straight wrists under the bar and then with each set, narrow your grip a little until it is tight and secure. Mark this position as the grip you will normally use. With your grip in place and your hands and thumbs on top of the bar, dip your head under the bar and come up into position with the bar on your back. Place the bar in the correct position just immediately under the bone you feel at the top of the shoulder blades, which is the spine of the scapula and then secure it in place by lifting your elbows and chest at the same time. It should feel as though the bar is resting on a shelf under the traps and on top of the posterior deltoids. This action tightens the muscles of your back and lifts your chest, placing the thoracic spine in an extended straight position and thereby fixing many of the problems encountered with a round back. Enormous weights can be safely handled this way later. 
Most people, starting with this method, will place the bar too high on the back, perhaps just above the scapular spine instead of just below it. Some people will place the bar too low, which will result in the elbows being carried too high to keep the bar from rolling down the back. This is not good. Check to make sure the bar is in the right position. Now, first and foremost, always step back out of the rack. Always. Never put the bar back in the rack by stepping backwards. Never. Do not do this. This cannot be done safely. You will have a wreck. You should never be in a position to have to step backwards and rack a weight at the end of a set. Face the rack. Do not face away from the rack. You cannot see the hooks if you are facing away from the rack. Even if you do have spotters, there will be a wreck. Don't do this. So, take the bar out of the rack, the step back in the same position in which it is to be squatted, the torso and shoulders tight, chest and elbows up, the head positioned down, both feet under the bar. Everything should be the same as it is for the full squat. So, take the bar off of the hooks by extending the knees and the hips just as in the top of the squat, that last little bit. In this way, any weight can be safely taken out of the rack. Many problems are caused by doing this improperly. It is very common to take the bar out of the rack with a loose back and chest and then attempting to tighten everything just before you start squatting. It is obviously much more effective to tighten the muscles and then take the weight onto tight muscles than it is to take the weight, let it mash down into your back through loose muscles until it stops on some crucial skeletal component and then try to tighten everything up underneath it. Likewise, taking the bar out with one foot back and only one foot under the bar, like a lunge, is a bad habit, one that everybody gets away with when the weight is light, but that can cause back problems from the unevenly stressed hips when the weight gets heavier. Unrack the bar exactly like it is in a squat, even when it's light, and you'll have no problems later when it is heavy. Once the bar leaves the rack, don't take a hike around the platform with it, backing up three or four steps before setting up the squat. This is unnecessary and it could become a problem if the set is heavy, the spotters are unreliable, or the trip back to the rack is just too far on this particular day. One step back out of the rack with good form is enough to clear the rack and allow the spotters to do their job while minimizing the trouble of getting the bar back home. The stance should be the same as the one used during the stretch, the unweighted phase. Again, heels should be about shoulder width apart, with toes pointed out about 30 degrees. Most people will change the stance at this point, rotating the toes back in. Make sure you are using the same stance you previously used during the unweighted part of this teaching method. At this point, you are ready to squat with the empty bar. The empty bar. All of the groundwork has been laid. The correct bottom position is fresh in your mind. And you are now in the correct starting position at the top of the squat. Everything you are about to do is the same as you did during the stretch. Only two things are different. One, you don't have your elbows available to help push your knees out at the bottom. So you must do this with your brain. Keep your knees out. And two, don't stop at the bottom. Just go down and immediately come back up, driving your butt straight up out of the bottom, not forward, not back, straight up out of the bottom. Now, take a big breath and hold it. Look down at a spot on the floor, about four to five feet in front of you, and squat. You should be in good balance at the bottom of the squat, or having already been there when you stretched. Your weight should stay evenly balanced over the middle of your feet. The reference point your eyes have on the floor should help you maintain position all the way down and all the way back up. Balance problems usually indicate a back angle that is too vertical. So make sure you're sitting back and leaning forward enough. Most people have a picture in their minds of a vertical torso during the squat, as we discussed before. 
Remember that the back angle will not be vertical. Not at all. Sit back, point your chest at the floor, shove your knees out in a straight line with your feet as you squat. Get someone to verify that your depth is good and do not accept anything less than full depth ever from this point on. If your impartial critic tells you that you're high, check your stance to make sure that it's wide enough but not too wide, that your toes are out enough, and that your knees are out enough tracking parallel to your feet. While he's being helpful to you, get him to check your eye gaze direction and to remind you to look down at every rep. If you're sure the form is fairly good, do a set of five and rack the bar. If the form is good except for your depth, the squat will act as a stretch over time if your knees are out. Most of the time, if you're high, it's because your knees are not out. Most people who have problems with the squat at this rank novice level, as well as later on, do not shove their knees out enough, and this can be a problem. We do not want the knees outside the plane of the feet, but they must be tracking out enough to stay parallel with the feet. If the squat is crazy bad, rack the bar and repeat the pre-squat procedure, focusing on the knees out part. To rack the bar safely and easily, walk forward until the bar touches the vertical parts of the rack. Find the uprights, not the hooks. You can't miss the uprights, and if you touch them, you'll be over the hooks. If you try to set the bar down directly on the hooks, you can and will eventually miss it on one side. This will result in a wreck. The general plan is to do a couple more sets of five reps with the empty bar to nail down the form and then add weight, do another set of five, and keep increasing in even increments until the next increase would compromise the form. Sets of five are a good number to learn with. There are not so many that fatigue affects form during reps four and five, but they are enough reps to establish and practice the technique while handling enough weight to get strong. Increments for increasing the weight between sets will vary with the trainee. Lightweight, unconditioned kids need to go up in 10 to 15 pound jumps. Older and stronger trainees can use 20 to 30 pound jumps. Decide which jump fits your situation, being conservative since it's your first day. Most people will try to increase the weight by increments that are too large for this point in the teaching method. Go up in weight, practicing good form, and making sure to keep good depth until you can tell that the next jump you're taking would alter your form. And then do two more sets at that weight for a total of three sets across with that heaviest weight for the day, and that is the first squat workout. These are the important things you're going to do wrong. Depth. You're probably going to squat to a position above parallel. This will occur because you're not looking down, you're not shoving your knees out, you have a stance that is either too narrow or too wide, or you have not committed to going deep. Knee position. You are going to fail to shove your knees out as you start down. This will make correct depth hard to attain and will kill your hip drive. Conversely, you exaggerate the knees out position, and at the bottom of the squat, your knees end up outside your feet. Neither of these options is correct. The feet must be in line with the knees. Knees must be in line with the feet for correct and safe squatting. Stance. Your stance will be either too narrow or too wide, with your toes usually pointed too forward. This will also result in a squat that is not below parallel. Eye gaze. You will fail to look down. You're going to do this. Be aware of this. 
and it will kill your hip drive. You cannot drive your hips effectively out of the bottom of a squat while looking up at the ceiling. Back angle. Your back angle will almost always be too vertical due to a faulty mental picture of what your hips do when you squat or due to the incorrect placement of the bar on your back. You do not have complete access to your hip extensors if your back is too vertical. This is the single most common problem most people have learning the squat. It could be related to eye gaze direction, but usually it involves an incorrect mental picture of what is going on in the squat. Learn squat mechanics and learn to avoid too vertical a back angle. Hip drive. You will lift your chest out of the bottom instead of driving your hips up because you've seen the boys at the Olympics do it that way. This will kill your power out of the bottom by making your vac angle too vertical and reducing the contribution of your hips to the movement. Bar placement. You will usually place the bar too high on your back. This will adversely affect your back angle and your hip drive. You may place the bar too low on your back, and this will adversely affect your elbow position. And the rack height. You will set the bar in the rack in a position that is too high for you. This will make the preferred position on the back difficult to attain. Now notice that all of these problems are extremely interrelated. The squat is a complex, multi-joint exercise whose correct execution depends on all the components of the entire system functioning together. An incorrect placement of any component will perturb the entire system to its detriment. A working knowledge of the functional mechanics of the system is important if you are to understand the contribution of each component to the system and the workings of the system as a whole. Leverage and Moment, the basis of barbell training. If the system of barbell training you're about to study is to be more than just another collection of opinions about the subject, it must proceed from more than just the history of the activity, the preferences of the author, and the observed habits of those people who happen to be performing at a high level. History is filled with examples of less than efficient behavior that is nonetheless effective. Personal preferences quite often reflect an unquenchable bias. People are often good at things without knowing exactly why, and these folks might be even better at them if they did. It seems likely that barbell training would be more efficiently performed if it had more in common with engineering than with astrology, more like physics class than birthday party, and it would be more effectively coached if it were developed from mechanics rather than from folklore. An understanding of the forces affecting the lifter and the barbell is essential to forming an accurate analysis of the movements used in barbell training. The squat, bench press, deadlift, press, and power clean are potentially complicated multi-joint exercises that form the basic movements employed in barbell training. The complexity of these movements is mitigated by the fact that they are all quite natural expressions of loaded human movement, the ways that the skeletal system translates the force of muscle contraction into movement as the body interacts with its environment. But if these natural movements are to effectively and efficiently function as exercises, they must be tailored to specifically cause the use of the most muscle mass over the longest range of motion so that the most weight can be lifted and thus produce the most effective strength adaptation. If we develop an accurate description of each exercise based on an understanding of what each one is supposed to accomplish in terms of movement against a loaded bar, how this movement is most efficiently accomplished using muscular contractile force translated to the skeletal components that transfer the force to the load, and which physical adaptations 
will accompany an ability to handle increasing loads in each particular movement pattern, we will have what can be described as a model of the exercise. This model must be grounded in an understanding of the principles that govern the motions within a physical system. And a grasp of each model makes the performance and coaching of each movement more straightforward, logical, and understandable. The science of classical mechanics studies the effects of forces on the motions of material bodies. An extensive treatment of this science is obviously outside the scope of our discussion here, but a basic understanding of a few of its concepts is critical to the development of an accurate model for each exercise in this method of barbell training. These concepts are important to understand because the system of levers you will use to lift the barbell, your muscles moving your skeleton loaded by the barbell in a gravitational framework, obeys the laws of mechanics, and you must know them before you can analyze your lifting to optimize the way you do it. So, let's start with the most basic concept and build on it. As previously noted, the agent that produces the weight of the loaded barbell is gravity. It is produced by the mass of the planet. And for our purposes, the planet is assumed to be a uniform sphere. Every unimpeded object will fall in a direction perpendicular to the surface of this sphere. The term level is used to denote a surface parallel to the surface of the planet, so that if an object is dropped, it always falls perpendicular to level, and we describe this path as vertical. The force exerted by the weight of a loaded bar is therefore always vertical and down, and the most efficient way to oppose the force of a freely moving barbell is with a force that is vertical and up. Some horizontal force may be applied to the bar during its trip through the rep, but none of the horizontal force can contribute to the vertical motion of the bar. So, to the extent that squatting, pulling, or pressing a loaded bar works against gravity, the vertical components of the force do the work. This means that the most efficient bar path for a barbell moving in a gravitational framework, is always a straight vertical line. Not only is this path the shortest distance between two points, but any force applied in any other direction is not work against the force of gravity. Gravity is expressed as three primary forces that affect the lifter-barbell system. Tension, compression, and moment. Tension is the force transmitted along an object that would elongate if it were deformable. Obviously, not every object is deformable under normal gym circumstances. An example would be the body of a lifter hanging from the chin-up bar. Were it deformable, it would lengthen under the force of tension. Compression is the force transmitted along an object that would get shorter if it were deformable. Compression is the opposite of tension, and an example would be the body of a lifter standing under the loaded squat bar. Both tension and compression are said to be axial forces because they are expressed parallel to the axis of the force that generates them, which is gravity. Moment is force that tends to cause a rotation about an axis. It is the force that is transmitted down a wrench handle to turn a bolt. Moment can also be thought of as leverage or turning force. When the bar is carried on the back or overhead in a lockout position of the press, the force it applies is compression. When the bar hangs from the arms in a deadlift or a clean, the force along the arms is tension. The bones transmit compressive force, and the connective tissues and muscles transmit tension. 
Both the connective tissues and the bones working together transmit moment force. If the bar is supported overhead and then lowered in an arc to the hang position of the deadlift, all three forces, compression at the top, moment as the arms travel through the arc to the body, and tension as the bar comes to rest on the legs can be experienced in that order. A moment arm is the distance between a point of rotation and the point at which the rotational force is applied, measured at 90 degrees from the point of the force application. When you're using a wrench, for example, the moment arm is the distance along the handle between the point of rotation, which would be the bolt, and the force that causes the rotation, which would be your hand, measured at 90 degrees to the direction of the force. Moment is the force transmitted along a rigid bar to act on a pivot or a fulcrum. The moment arm, and the term lever arm is synonymous if you prefer that, is essentially a way to calculate the amount of moment force generated by a lever. The moment force is the force applied to the bar multiplied by the length of the moment arm. At one end of the system, force is being applied to the bar. At the other end of the system, the turning force is being resisted by the object being turned, so that along the rigid bar, force is acting in two directions. For this reason, Moment is a shear force, in contrast to the axial forces of tension and compression, shear being a force composed of two opposite directions. The moment arm is the effective distance over which the turning force operates. The longer the moment arm is, the more turning force is produced by the actual force applied to the bar. The most effective angle to pull on the wrench handle is perpendicular to it, 90 degrees. Now, this is intuitively obvious to anyone who's ever used the device. You adjust the position of the jaws on the conveniently designed hexagonal head of the bolt, shaped this way for just this purpose so you can adjust to it, so that you can pull on the wrench at right angles to it, regardless of the angle at which the job causes the wrench to fit on the bolt. If you pull at any angle other than 90 degrees, some of the force will either be compression or tension along the wrench handle. 90 degrees is the only angle at which all of the pulling force causes the wrench to turn the bolt. Since 90 degrees is the most effective angle at which to pull, any other angle is only as effective as the distance along the moment arm measured at 90 degrees, thus the convention of measuring its length at this angle. The amount of turning force that can be applied to the bolt varies with the length of the moment arm which would be the distance from the working end of the wrench to your grip, measured at 90 degrees to your pull, and the amount of force applied to it, how hard you pulled on the wrench. You can increase the amount of turning force by either pulling harder or by lengthening the handle, which would be getting a longer wrench or using a cheater pipe. In barbell training, the turning force is the force of gravity acting along the barbell, and the moment arms are the horizontal distances between the barbell and the joint along the segments of the body over which the force acts. The instant the knees and hips are unlocked in a squat and our diagnostic angles come into existence along the back, thigh, and shank segments, moment arms come into existence between the endpoints of these segments and the location of the bar relative to the segment and the balance point under the midfoot. The force of gravity always operates straight down. 
The hand turning this particular wrench is gravity, and it's always pulling straight down from the bar. So we can calculate the moment arms along the segments in barbell training as measured perpendicular to the vertical bar path, the gravity vector. This means that the length of the moment arm along the back segment in the squat will always be the horizontal distance between the bar and the hips. For the thigh segment, the moment arms will be the horizontal distance between the bar and the hips and the horizontal distance between the bar and the knees. Since the femur is bisected by the gravity vector, and the moment arm can be considered from either the hip or the knee. The hip extensors see the femur moment arm between the hip and the bar, and the knee extensors see the femur moment arm between the knee and the bar. In fact, since the horizontal distance from hip to bar is the same along the back and the thigh, the moment force on these two segments is the same too. Likewise, along the shank segment, between knees and ankles, the moments can be regarded as between bar and ankles and between bar and knees. The moment arm between the bar and the hips will thus vary with the bar position on the back and the angle at which the back is inclined. If the bar is in the low position advocated here, the distance between the hips and bar is shorter than it would be if the bar were in a higher position. But since the bar must be maintained over the midfoot balance point, the lower bar position requires a more horizontal back angle. And for the same reason, the more vertical back angle compensates for the longer distance between the bar and the hips in the high bar position. The moment arm. The horizontal distance between the hips and the barbell in both positions may indeed be the same length, but we don't use the low bar position because it reduces moment force on the back segment. We use it because the more horizontal back angle, the more closed the hip angle, and the more open knee angle place the hips further behind the midfoot balance point, creating a longer moment arm we can use to involve more muscle mass and lift heavier weights. This anatomical manipulation adds their mass to the muscles moving the load and thus also enables heavier weight to be used because more muscle mass can move it. There is another way to consider the moments active in the lifter barbell system. In each case, a moment arm involves a force on one end a point of rotation on the other end, and a segment transmitting the force in between. Consider the effect of the bar on your shoulders as it relates to the balance point at the midfoot. If the bar moves forward or backward from its ideal position over the midfoot, in other words, you apply any force horizontally to the bar, and the midfoot balance point is thought of as a point of rotation, then, between the bar and the midfoot, a rotational force is created that acts along the whole system. This horizontal force creates a moment arm that is expressed vertically along the body between the middle of the foot and the barbell. Now, it is true that the foot is a flat surface, the sole of your shoe, of course, in contact with another flat surface, the floor, and the actual point of rotation nearest the floor would be the ankle joint. But given that the calf stabilizes the ankle, that the load shifts in relation to the midfoot if the bar and your body move forward or backward, and that the greater the weight and the distance, the larger the effect, the system behaves like a moment arm acting on a point of rotation at the midfoot. This leverage has the potential to add quite a bit to the force needed to overcome the weight of the bar, which happens as the bar moves forward of the balance point. Forward is the usual direction of off-balance movement 
due to the vagaries of human anatomy. The ankle is behind the midfoot. The knees articulate forward. The eyes are forward directed. Hands move forward. Everything on you is forward. Most people who have been training for more than a couple of weeks will not put themselves in the rather awkward position of moving back with a bar on the shoulders. And since the body is in an asymmetrical position at the bottom of a squat or a deadlift, with more of the body behind the bar than in front of it, it would be simplistic to conclude that the same amount of movement forward and backward from the midfoot would affect the system symmetrically. In other words, that a forward movement of three inches would have to be reacted against with the same force as a backward bar path deviation of the same three inches. Considered in this context, the term out of balance means that a moment, rotational force, exists between the bar and the midfoot vertically along the body. And this moment must be controlled with an amount of force necessary to cancel its effects. This is force that could be more productively used to lift more weight on the bar if it were in balance. So your ability to control the moment between the bar and the midfoot, your ability to maintain a vertical relationship between the barbell and the midfoot with heavy weight is your ability to use good technique in lifting. We must consider the effects of two systems of leverage while we squat. The moments operating horizontally along the segments of the body are produced by the force of gravity acting on the load. They are inherent in squatting down and standing back up under a heavy barbell. They make up the resistance against which we work to get strong. The moment operating vertically between the bar and the midfoot balance point, however, must be kept at zero to avoid wasting force that could otherwise be used to lift more weight. Both of these moments must be considered when you're analyzing the biomechanics of the system. Common problems everyone should know how to solve. A correct squat will always have certain identifiable characteristics controlled by skeletal anatomy and muscle function. For any squat, back or front, these conditions will be satisfied, making it relatively easy to determine whether form and position are correct. At the top, all of the skeletal components that support the bar, the knees, hips, and spine, will be locked in extension so that the muscular components have to exert only enough force to maintain this position, in which compression is the primary force on the skeletal components. The job of the muscles here is to keep the bones lined up correctly so that they can hold up the load. The bar will be over the middle of the foot. The heavier the weight, the more critical this position will be. When the squat begins its eccentric phase, all the muscles that will ultimately extend these joints, or in the case of the spinal erector muscles, isometrically maintain extension under increasing stress, come under mechanical load as they resist the leverage along the segments on the way down to the bottom position. During this ride to the bottom, the bar must maintain its position over the midfoot. The correct bottom position is identified by definite anatomical position markers. One, the spine will be held in rigid lumbar and thoracic extension. Two, the bar will be directly over the middle of the foot. Three, the feet will be flat on the ground, but the correct angle for the stance width. Four, the thighs will be parallel to the feet. And fifth, the hip joint will be in a position lower than the top of the patella. Any deviation from this position will constitute bad technique, as will any movement on the way down or back up that causes a deviation from this position. And actually, if you keep the bar in the correct vertical position over the midfoot on the way down and back up, as if the bar were riding in a narrow slot directly plumbed to the midfoot, you will have done it correctly your skeleton will have solved the problem of how to most efficiently use your muscles to get the job of squatting done. It will have done so within the constraints imposed upon it by the mechanics of the barbell body gravity system. The position of the bar on the torso will control the angle of the back. 
and the angle of the back and the stance will control the forward or back position of the knees. When the bar is in the front squat position, the back will be quite vertical because this angle is necessary to keep the bar over the midfoot and to prevent it falling forward off the shoulders. When the back is this vertical, the hips are nearly directly under the bar, a position which forces the knees well forward in front of the toes and which the ankles must accommodate by allowing the tibias to incline. This means that for the front squat, the back angle will be nearly vertical, the hip angle will be open, and the knee angle will be closed. For the back squat, when the bar is in the position advocated here, just below the spine of the scapula, the back will be at a much more horizontal angle, and the knees will be at a point just in front of the toes, depending on your anthropometry, of course, so that the hip angle will be more closed and the knee angle more open. A high bar squat would place the back and knees in the middle of these two more useful positions. Every barbell exercise that involves the feet on the floor and a barbell supported by the body will be in its best balance both during the movement and at lockout when the bar is vertically plumbed to the middle of the foot as discussed earlier. An assistance exercise like the barbell curl or the good morning, intentionally moves the bar out of line as a part of creating the resistance for the exercise. Grip and arms. Grip errors are common even among experienced lifters. The grip on the bar is the first part of your temporary relationship with the barbell that is referred to as a set. If that grip is wrong, none of the reps in that set will be optimal because the relationship of the body to the bar is determined first by hand position on the bar. For instance, an uncentered placement of the bar on your back results in an asymmetrical loading of all the components under the bar. That is, more weight on one leg, hip, and knee than on the other, as well as a spinal shear. A careless approach to grip placement can result in problems with heavy weights. Most people, as discussed earlier, will need to take an even grip somewhere between the score mark and the end of the knurl. There is, however, an important exception to this rule. For a trainee whose shoulders have significant differences in flexibility, as might result from an injury, a symmetrical grip on the bar will result in an asymmetrical bar position on the back. A tight shoulder on the left side, for example, prevents the upper arm from assuming the same angle as that used on the uninjured right side. The tight shoulder thus drags the bar out toward that side, resulting in the bars being off-center left and out of level on the back. If this is your situation, and it might require a third party or a mirror to identify this, since it's not always easy to feel, you will need to experiment with your grip until you find the right position for each hand. Centered loading on the back should be your primary concern at this stage. As we discussed earlier, the thumb should be placed on top of the bar so that the wrist can be held in a straight line with the forearm. The vast majority of people, however, will prefer to hold the bar with a thumbs-around grip. At lighter weights, this is fine because the load is easy to keep in place. But when heavier weights are being used, the grip that results from thumbs-around can create its own problems. Most people have a mental picture of the hands holding up the weight, and this usually ends up being what happens. The bar sits in the grip with the thumbs around the bar. The wrists are bent back. In extension, the elbows end up directly below the weight, and really nothing prevents the bar from sliding down the back from this position. People who do this will eventually have sore elbows, a horrible headache-like soreness in the inside of the elbow that makes them think the injury occurred during curls. If the elbows are underneath the weight and the force of the weight is straight down, the nature of gravity is sometimes inconvenient, then the wrists and elbows will unavoidably intercept some of the weight. With heavy weights, the loading can be quite high, and these structures are not nearly as capable of supporting 500 pounds as the back is. If the thumbs are on top of the bar, the hands can assume a position that is straight in line with the forearms when the elbows are raised. 
If you're accustomed to letting your wrists relax into extension and letting your elbows drop, your grip might be too narrow for your shoulder flexibility, and a slightly wider grip would make wrists easier to maintain. You might also need to actively curl the wrist into what will feel like flexion if you have been passively allowing it to extend in the correct position. In the correct position, the wrist is straight, neither flexed nor extended. None of the weight is over any part of the arm, wrist, or hand, and all of the weight is on the back. Learn to carry all of the weight of the bar safely on your back before your strength improves to the point where this same weight carried in your hands and thus on your wrists and elbows can become a problem. Occasionally, a person gets misled into thinking that it is okay to put the hands out so wide on the bar that the fingers or even the palms of the hands are in contact with the plates. Bizarre as this sounds, you will eventually see this in the gym. As grip width increases, upper back muscle tightness decreases and muscular support for the bar is diminished, as previously discussed. If the posterior deltoids, rotator cuff muscles, traps, and rhomboids relax due to a widened grip, the skeleton becomes the default support structure. This is less than desirable. To add to the problem, by placing the hands on the plates, a rotating pair of objects at the far end of the bar, well, that's just silly. You must be in control of the bar, and this means that you must have the bar secure on your back and therefore in your grip. As is often the case in athletics, one problem is intimately associated with another, and the solving of one fixes the other. A lack of shoulder tightness and failure to keep the chest up are related problems that must be corrected together. If your elbows drop, your shoulders relax. If you lift your elbows, your shoulders tighten. If your elbows are too high, the upper back rounds. Likewise, lifting the chest requires a contraction of the upper back muscles, especially the superior portion of the longissimus dorsi complex. Lifting the chest is thoracic spinal extension, a back movement. The act of tightening the shoulders and lifting the elbows aids the thoracic extension muscles by helping to support the bar at the point where it is mashing down into the back. If you do both of these things at the same time, all the muscles under the bar tighten. And if you do this before you take the weight of the bar onto your back, the bar cannot sink down through loose muscle unsupported against the skeletal components of the shoulder. Lifting the elbows and the chest together tightens the supporting muscles under the bar, so do this before you let the weight bury itself in your back. Many people seem to make a level spot for the bar to sit on by keeping the chest parallel to the floor, as if bending over into spinal flexion makes the bar less likely to roll off the back. This is the same thing that happens when the elbows are too high. The bar will not roll off of your back if you properly grip the bar with your hands in the correct position and then tighten your elbows into their correct position. When the elbows come up a little and the chest comes up at the same time, the hands are pushed forward and the bar is actually forced forward into the back, trapped between the hands and the rack position on the back. This jamming effect creates a tight, secure bar position that can tolerate changes of angle, acceleration, and deceleration. Problems with the back. Although the squat has an undeserved baseless reputation for knee injury, its greatest danger is to the spine. Lower back injuries, usually due to form problems, are more common by far than knee injuries, and care must be taken to prevent them. It's not hard to hurt your lower back, and back injuries are the most common workplace injury, amounting to many billions of dollars per year in treatment costs and lost productivity. Lifters are susceptible as well, although our back problems with lower back injuries are most often associated with activities outside the gym. I personally have squatted many, many times with an injured back, and had no problems with it whatsoever. 
Hundreds of thousands of young lifters at the mercy of inexperienced, pig-headed coaches are permitted to lift heavy weights with bad spinal mechanics every day, and the rate of the injury in the weight room remains low. The most dangerous movement for the spine is flexion with rotation under a load. And we don't do this in barbell training. We do it when putting the lawnmower in the back of the truck. So barbell training, even done incorrectly, is comparatively safe. But doing it wrong is much more dangerous than doing it correctly. Our primary concern is that doing it wrong is also inefficient. So we'll do it right because that ultimately allows us to lift more weight and get stronger. And safety will be a welcome side effect. Understanding the role of the lower back in lifting mechanics requires an understanding of the anatomy of the hip and leg musculature, as well as of spinal anatomy. Remember from our previous discussion that the spine acts as a rigid bar to transmit moment force generated by the muscles that extend the hips and knees. The spine is held rigid by the musculature of the trunk, and it is moved through space by the muscles that extend the pelvis into which the spine is locked by the muscles of the low back. The hamstring group consists of the biceps femoris, the semimembranosus, and the semitendinosus, all three of which attach to the ischial tuberosity of the pelvis. They all insert at various points on the tibia, below the knee on the lower leg. This configuration means that the hamstring group crosses two joints, the hip, and the knee, and therefore technically has two functions, the proximal function, hip extension, and the distal function, knee flexion. The hamstring also acts isometrically against both attachments to control the back angle. When you squat, ultimately, it is hip extension, straightening out the hip joint, their proximal function, that you produce with the hamstring, along with the glutes and adductors. In reality, the hamstrings can control hip extension, knee flexion, and back angle while functioning eccentrically, concentrically, and isometrically. The definitions of these functions are blurry and are really significant only when we isolate joints on exercise machines. The complexities of normal movement do not lend themselves to such constructed distinctions. Squatting power is generated by the hips and legs and is transmitted up the rigid trunk segment to the load resting on the shoulders. The spinal column is held rigid in its normal anatomical position by the muscles of the back, sides, rib cage, and abs so that the force can be safely transmitted through the trunk to the load. Before you lift anything heavy, you squeeze your abs. Really, you squeeze everything in the vicinity of your abs. You squeeze all this into contraction. The squeezing transforms your trunk into what is essentially a rigid cylinder that surrounds and supports the spine. The effect is that of a hydrostatic column, an uncompressible column of fluid that is therefore capable of transmitting compressive force between the contracting abdominal wall and the spine. The force of contraction transmitted through this fluid medium braces the spine into the position set by the back muscles until the load overcomes your ability to stay in position. These muscles contract isometrically. That is, they stay in contraction but cause no movement to occur. And in doing so, they permit no movement to occur. The pelvis articulates with the spine in the L5-S1 area of the lower back, the area above the tailbone. The muscles of the lower back, the erector spiny group, or spinal erectors, insert on the pelvis and at numerous points along the spinal column. When these muscles are contracted, the pelvis remains in a constant position relative to the lumbar vertebra. The spinal erectors and associated lower back ligaments serve to lock the pelvis and spine into a rigid structure to protect the vertebral column from movement under load and to hold all these joints in their normal anatomical positions while you're lifting heavy loads so that the intervertebral discs are not damaged. This area needs to stay arched to stay safe when you're lifting 
and this is why the pelvis must tilt forward at the same angle as the lower back as you lean forward. However, as the squat approaches the bottom position, the necessary forward lean of the trunk can have a tendency to make the lower back assume a flexed, rounded position. This tendency is caused by the hamstring anatomy and the position of the thighs. As squat depth increases and the torso assumes a more forward tilt, the bottom of the pelvis, which is after all the origin point of the hamstrings, comes under tension from the direction of the proximal tibias, the insertion point of the hamstring just below the knees. As the hamstrings become more loaded by the back angle, they become tighter and begin to exert more pull on both the knees and their pelvic attachments. If your knees are not far enough apart, your thighs will also crowd into your torso as you approach the bottom. There are two problems. First, your back muscles attach at the top of your pelvis, your hamstrings attach at the bottom of the pelvis, and the pelvis can pivot around the hips, which is between these two points of attachment. So both the lower back muscles and the hamstrings can cause pelvic movement around the hip joints. The back muscles and the hamstrings are thus competing for control of your pelvis. And the back muscles must win if your spine is to stay efficiently rigid and safe. Second, if the femurs are too close together as you approach the bottom, there is not enough space between them for the torso to drop down low enough for a deep squat. The key is to position the femurs the pelvis, and the low back so that the erectors and the hamstrings complement each other's function. By shoving the knees out as you squat while locking the pelvis into extension, you remove the tendency for the lower back to round. Shoving them out as you unlock at the top places the femurs in external rotation, and then the muscles that perform external rotation just keep the femurs in this position all the way down and up. The muscles that are stretched out when externally rotated then become active in the squat. If the knees are shoved out of the way, hamstring extensibility plays no role in the ability to assume a deep squat position. Since the hamstrings do not stretch out that much, if at all, because the knees and hips flex and extend together, most people are flexible enough to squat below parallel if they just do it correctly. Usually, the biggest problem with back extension is the trainee's inability to identify which position the lower back is actually in. A lack of kinesthetic sense, the ability to identify the position of the body or a body part in spatial relation to the ground or the rest of the body, is very common. Some people have absolutely no idea that their lower back is rounded at the bottom of the squat, or that it is arched correctly at the top of the squat, or have any idea at all what position their back is in. They can't tell an upper back arch from a lower back arch, and the line between upper and lower seems to be blurred. If you ask someone with this problem to arch his lower back, he may lift his chest or bend over from the waist, or perform a number of other interesting movements that have nothing to do with lumbar extension. Many people with inflexible hamstrings exhibit this problem, but hamstring flexibility is not actually required to squat correctly, and many perfectly flexible people cannot assume a position of lumbar extension and hold it through a squat. Some people, mostly female as a general rule, can place the lumbar spine into a position of overextension, and this is bad too, perhaps potentially more so than a flexed lumbar. This occurs when you fail to use your abs to provide the anterior support necessary to counter the extension provided by the erectors. But this overextension is far less common than the simple inability to maintain lumbar extension against a heavy load in the squat or deadlift. As it turns out, if you can't make a voluntary concentric contraction of the lumbar erectors, the movement commonly understood as arching the lower back, 
then you have no voluntary way to keep the low back in extension when this position gets hard to maintain under a load. Now, let me say this again. I want you to understand this point. This is terribly critical. An overextended lumbar spine is not the position you use to squat. But if you can't voluntarily arch your lower back into overextension, you can't control the erectors well enough to keep the spine from flexing at the bottom of the squat or at the start of the deadlift or a pull. The key to learning the correct position for the lower back is to assume a position that is correct and then memorize the way it feels so that you can reproduce it every time. The best way to do this is with a little drill that 